Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The word of the Lord. Thank you for that reading, Chris. Instructions for building a house is what we've called our series on the Gospel of Matthew so far. Today is a bit of a a different Sunday in some ways because First, today is the the culmination of the church year. Here's an image of the church year, and we do our best to sort of practice this at Defiance Church. And so um, ordinary time, um, which is just, yes, it's it's always amazing to me that they just went with ordinary time. It was like, well, we should name it something exciting. No, ordinary time it is. Um, Or the season after Pentecost, as you'll see it called in in some documents, uh, sort of covered us through June, July, August, September, October, November. Um, And then next week will be our first Sunday in Advent, um, which is, we'll talk about it more next Sunday, but it's this time in which we both um, anticipate the coming of God with us in Christ in his incarnation. It's the time of the year we're most like Jews, I'll say next Sunday, as I say every year, Um, playing all my cards now. And the second thing about it is that we await the return of Christ. We await that second advent. Um, and so to celebrate advent properly, you you sort of have this frame of reference of the first advent and the second advent sort of coming together. Um, and then you go into Christmas time, and then we have Epiphany, which is uh, more most often where the time of the Sermon on the Mount would be read, according to the Revised Common Lectionary. And so we will be going back to the Sermon on the Mount in the Epiphany season up here. And we'll take on the warnings that sort of make up the end of the sermon. Um, and then Lent, in this time in which we walk to the cross with Jesus, um, Easter, that celebration of the resurrection, Ascension, um, where Christ ascends so that he can fill all things. That was, uh, it took me preaching on that to realize he just didn't peace out to leave. He left so that he could fill all things in the word of Ephesians. And so uh, Ascension Sunday, and then back to ordinary time all over again. And so that's sort of uh, the church calendar and sort of where we find ourselves today at the end of this ordinary time. And the year, the church year starts in Advent. 
so next Saturday is, is New Year's Eve. Have a great time um, uh, because the next morning, Advent starts. Um, and so that's sort of where we are. But what today is, is this reign of Christ Sunday or Christ the King Sunday, as you'll see it called in some ways. And so it's an it's a interesting Sunday to, to think about anxiety. Um, one of the things that you learn as a person, um, and as a preacher, we learn it in a different way to some degree, is that when you have one point of reference, anxiety, you can tackle lots of meaning out of it. You can almost tackle infinite meaning out of it because it's one point of reference. It can connect to anything. But when you set up two frames of reference, now you can tell a story. Now you can think through things. It is Christ the King Sunday. To be a people who know that Christ will one day sit on the throne and administer everything as it was meant to be, as it is right, next to anxiety means something else. So when you think about your life, you know, one point of reference is, is one thing, but two points of reference, now you can tell a story. What do these things capture? What do these things do? And so for us today, as we talk about the anxiety of this last passage of the Sermon on the Mount, it's to consider... Um, what does that mean in light, in the light that Christ one day will be enthroned as king over all of creation? Um, in theory, that would diminish our sense of anxiety. It would diminish who, uh, how we carry ourselves in the world to know that that is the culmination of all things would cause us, in the words of what, of what Brian read today, to cast our anxieties on the Lord, to, to in, the, in the King James, do not worry. To, to fear not is one of the other more popular commands in the Bible, to, to not have fear, because when you see history from its culmination, which Christians have access to through the revelation of the word and the gift of the Holy Spirit, and probably some other things I'm forgetting about, uh, the act of communion in some sense is a foretaste of that sign as well. Um, you can begin to approach the day differently. You can begin to approach life differently than that flat sense of time. So as we prepare to leave the Sermon on the Mount, we'll do a quick overview. This has sort of been our theme. Is, is as we use this instructions to build a house, we also acknowledge that we are human and cannot live the sermon perfectly. And so lots of, as we talked about early on, lots of people stop right here and they're like, so don't try. It's just there to say we're not perfect. We ought to therefore recognize they're both our obligation and our ability, and by that very fact, give glory to God. This has sort of been the overarching theme. And so as we get to anxiety today, um, we live in anxious times in an anxious world the idea that, that we would use this over other people to say, live this perfectly uh, as Christ would live it is perhaps too much for us. But in our trying, in our striving, in our willingness to be corrected and taught by this teaching, maybe perhaps we can give glory to God in that gap in between. And this is one way the Sermon on the Mount has sort of been decided is it begins with that call of mercy, this discipleship community coming up front to Jesus uh, when he begins the sermon. And this is sort of him calling out the visible church in the world as we talked about it. Uh, he calls them up and he re receives blessings upon them, the Beatitudes, and also declares to them that they are salt and light, that they are essential for the world. And then he goes through the commands that he has fulfilled the law and the prophets. 
and that he um, then will teach them a better righteousness. This better righteousness comes out in these commands, and, and they are, you know, hate, lust, divorce, oaths, uh, retaliation, uh, enemies, um, that there's a fulfillment to these things. And then he teaches them this better righteousness through devotions, almsgiving, fasting, prayer. Um, and we centered sort of on the Lord's Prayer there, which uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount and its structure seems to center on the Lord's Prayer and this notion of this Father, which is a major theme as we've been going through it, and also this kingdom that is going to come on earth as it is in heaven. And how this church that is called out is a foretaste to that, or is a witness to its, its coming into the world. It is not the thing itself, but it bears witness to it. The goals is what we're going through right now, this, this, um, that our treasures would be in heaven, um, that we would see with the light uh, within us in a good way, that it would not be darkness, um, that we would um, release our anxiety. And so that leaves the last chapters with the warnings, which uh, it contains judgment and then these dual, uh, dual, there's two gates, there's two prophets, there's two... A way is to build a house, which is where we'll end the sermon. So that's what we'll pick up in the new year um, with the Sermon on the Mount. And that's what we've walked through so far. But as we begin today to talk about anxiety, a phrase I use here often is, uh, what does it mean for Christians to be a non-anxious presence in the world? And one of the few times I've ever been able to use an acronym in my preaching Uh, I saved this image when I wrote it out as NAP, just abbreviating non-anxious presence, but it means nap. (laughs) So for Christians to be the ones who can take a nap in the face of the world saying, arise, arise, do something. Can't you worry with the rest of us? Can't you bind your life in anxiety? How is it you can take a nap when all this is going on. That's a guy sleeping. But what does it mean? Yeah, see, abstract. I had to explain it. Um, That was what I was going for. What does it mean for us to be a non-anxious presence in the world? Um, A third of Americans suffer from anxiety, and it seems to be rising every year. Uh, It said that we were 40% more anxious in 2018. And all these stats are great because it's all pre-COVID. You can imagine it's going down right now, don't you think? Um, uh, All the anxiety bound up in us must be getting released into like, you know what, we're not in control. There are bigger things out there. Um, If you're taking that lesson from this, you should be giving this sermon Um, because that's one lesson you could take from this is that while I store and while I save and while I try to make myself as safe as possible, if I, if I walked into a place in, in March or February, I could have been taking my life into my own hands in a way that I didn't even know. You could take from this time this idea of which, man, it's all a facade, isn't it? Like we think we can guard against everything, that technological solutions will come to aid us in all our struggles and trials. Um, from... From early on, you've heard from people, my hope is in a vaccine, which is an odd thing for a Christian to say. Now, now most oftentimes, I'm guessing they don't mean that that is their hope. 
But for us, our hope is in the God who rescues and saves us and preserves us from the end, this Father in heaven that Jesus has been talking about here. And, and part of it is, um, you know, when we started church during this time that we call COVID, I said, uh, Karl Barth, the theologian, when he um, was asked after Hitler was elected chancellor of Germany for life, that his students came to him and they said, what should we do? And he said, to go on as if nothing has happened. Um, and I said, well, the world is, is going to go crazy over this for the next two weeks. <laughs> I was so right. Um, two weeks, I said, the world is going to go crazy over this. Um, but for the church, perhaps to go on as nothing has happened. What I think he meant is, if you've been preaching the gospel, if you've been teaching and administering the sacraments, if you've been gathered together in this way, the only thing that changes that is the return of Christ. There's a Stanley Harawas, who I quote far too often, but you've learned to live with that. Um, it, he said that after September 11th, people would come to him and they say, the world's different now. The world's changed, Stanley. And he would say, for Christians, the appropriate th- thing is to say the world only changed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we begin to mess those things up, after September 11th, the world has changed, it led us into dark alleys, some that I don't think worked out well for us, and some uh, you could debate about that, but we began to reassess who we were in a way that wasn't reassessing who we were in light of the life and death of Jesus Christ, his cross and resurrection, the good news in which we have been stewarded. And so as, as I teach about anxiety today, Um, My goal isn't to say this is perhaps the solution for us in this time of COVID or in this time of of 21st century anxiety. I think it's it's what we would, what going back to that that earlier Burke quote about to go on as nothing has happened, it's there for us all the time. In first century Palestine, these people struggled with anxiety. Jesus wasn't writing this for 21st century Americans saying this. Somebody else wrote it. Um, 21st century Americans suffer with anxiety. And the solution for it is to see, to look at birds, to look at flowers, and to consider how much more your Father in heaven considers you in comparison to that. And so if we have this goal here of becoming a non-anxious presence for the world, we did the Psalm of Ascents last year. This is one that came up often for us. To be that presence which isn't just chasing after anxiety. Uh, It starts, I think, here. It starts in Psalm 139 that Brian read for us at the end. Search me and know me so that I may cast my anxieties on you. Search out my anxieties. Because anxiety seems to come from this idea that we can save and preserve ourselves. God can have my soul, but I'll deal with the money stuff. Um, God can be in charge of... Uh, and with parents, um, the temptation, I think, is, is somewhat worse because we'll say, you know, well, God can do whatever he wants with me, but I worry about my kids. And it's like, God will do whatever God wants with both. Um, and we want to hold on to these things. And, and we pick our anxieties. We're luck, some of us are lucky that we can hide our anxieties. They're not ones you can talk about in public as much. And others of us, uh, um, we have anxieties that sort of get cast out there. And, and that's perhaps something that, that is being revealed at this time. Um, you know, people anxious about 
health and wellness and this, that, and the other, but I don't think you'd have to sit with yourself long, do a moral inventory and be like, I share anxiety with many people. Not about the same things, but we share an anxious age together. This is an email I got this week, which I thought was a funny way to title an email. Smartphones are making you miserable. That was the subject line. Um, I thought it was funny. Uh, uh, Maybe it's because I was writing a sermon on anxiety. And and smartphones, in their research, are making us more anxious. It's not just social media. It's the vibration. Um, You know, if I told you to put your phones on silent today and you felt that vibration, you'd be like, do I check it now? Check it later. Is Matt looking at me yet? No, he's not looking. Okay, okay. Fantasy football score went up. Great. Um, you, you begin to live in this sort of way. This notification system we have is making us miserable. The ways in which we go to social media, uh, you don't have to spend a lot of time on... Social media is easy to pick on, so I won't say any more than obviously social media is making us anxious. Um, but just the nature of these things that vibrate to our attention makes us anxious. So much so, and this has happened to me, and I'm not proud of it, phantom vibrations. Has anybody ever had one of those? Where you're like, oh, my phone is vibrating. And one, it didn't. And two, you don't even have your phone. (laughs) Um, That is the worst when you're like, oh, yeah, uh, somebody's trying to get a hold of me. And you go to get your phone, and you don't have it. You left it at home. Pray for me. Emails are making us anxious, or emails when they vibrate, but smartphones are making us anxious. We live in this world in which we keep getting prone to our anxiety. Now, with college students, the research on how much time are they spending on their smartphones, if they set the bar at this, you check your smartphone, and for the next, I think it's just five minutes, that counts as being on the phone, right? They're on their phone every waking minute of the day for the most part. Like, there would be literally no time that they aren't on their phone. So if you turn on your smartphone tracking app on your phone, which they all have now, Apple has one, I forget what it's called, Google has one called Digital Wellbeing, which would probably be like, delete, get rid of your smartphone. Um, but, but it actually just tracks what you're doing, which is less helpful. It only tracks the time that you're actually holding it and looking at it. But you know that when the thing buzzes, when something happens, it takes you about 5 to 10 to 15 minutes, even longer sometimes, to get your attention back on whatever you were doing. And so even if you're using one of those things, you're like, look, it only says I unlocked my phone 76 times today, which I think is average, um, the research suggests. Times that by 5 minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes, And you've lost a lot of your day to that. And the anxiety it's intended to produce in us is almost meant to keep us going. I know some of you watched um, The Social Dilemma. Um, uh, There's a darker interpretation of all that, too, that sort of pushes us into that this is what is making us anxious. And and anxiety um, medications are on the rise. Anxiety, in so many ways, is what is building up within us. Which is interesting because you think the first century people are anxious about, like, if I have bad crops, we might all die in famine. If the water source dries up, either I'll move, can't live here anymore. 
in the, in the Nile Valley, um, the reason why it's easy to think of why they made gods out of their uh, river system is because too much, we all flood and die. Too little, we all starve and die. We have drinking fountains in public. Um, Americans toss away a lot of food, and there's plenty of places to go and, and be fed in the world today. And most of us, by virtue of just knowing you guys, have large enough social safety nets that if it all falls apart uh, in friendships and relationships, that we'd make it. Um, and yet anxiety rises and rises for us. It's almost as we find more and more ways to make ourselves secure, the more and more anxiety can go up with it. So like many of you, I have some sort of retirement, and I got a statement on my retirement account quarterly, and in the first quarter, it was bad news. Um, it had just tanked completely. Uh, and so I told my dad, I said, hey, you, you, reti you retired to Sonoma. You must have done something right. Um, what should I do about this? And he was like, nothing. He was like, you're uh, 30." 37 um, uh, in that time of year. He was like, you're 37. It's, you just got to wait. Like, what do you, you stop checking it. Don't look at it again until you're 60, he said. Um, I was like, well, they mail it to me every month to produce anxiety within me so that I might think about my own solutions to solve this, when in fact I have no clue on how to solve this. Um, and so we have, I mean, something that I couldn't be anxious about 100 years ago makes me anxious in a, in a way that I thought about it for much longer than I should have today. That we invent new ways of being anxious as our security goes up. We have rising anxiety in the world. And it has to do with, I think, our notion is that we believe over and over and over again that we can make it this place, that we can, we can save ourselves, that this works for us. And so our anxiety goes up accordingly with that. What will happen next? And so what Jesus says to us is, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or what you will wear. Plus, he didn't say 401k. Aha. Um, but also, I think, if you look down to your most basic concerns, he's saying, don't even worry about your most basic concerns, the ones that are way beyond that. Then don't worry about those as well. Um, if you can learn to lower your anxiety about what you might eat or drink or wear tomorrow, it would take care of other things as well that we learn to not worry about our life. And part of this goes back to that last passage of trusting that we have treasures in heaven, that God is storing up something for us, and that where our heart is, there we are also. If our center of emotions, if our life is in another place, there we are also. And so he says, look at the birds of the field. Look of the birds of the air. They do not sow or weep or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you add a single hour to your life? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? 
So what happens is he says to look first at the birds of the sky. We have this notion, uh, it comes from a poem that nature is written in red cloth and tool and, or tooth, red tooth and claw. That like we have to, nature is entirely like a violent thing that we get sort of through this evolutionary world and that we say, okay, well, how does that work with this? Look at the birds. But for the most part, animals don't overstore. They don't have, you know, a lion kills something, devours it, and then the next day you see them like hanging out with gazelles around them because they've had their fill. They're not ones to just devour endlessly to devour. Like they eat their fill. They, they go to that place. But what Jesus says is that these birds don't store or reap or store away in barns and let your heavenly father feeds them. That in the ancient Near East, there was this notion that like birds don't seem to work, um, which is... What? There are some animals that store, like with anything, there's exceptions to these things, but they store, um, yeah, that's the thing, is that there's a bit of an, there's a bit of a, uh, and they don't build uh, storage barns, do they? God has provided them the place they can store, whereas we build a bigger and bigger barn um, to store more and more. Their, their storage is limited by, the, this is the hole I found, I will put in as much as I want. Um, but they don't, uh, so they don't plant anything. I think that's the most basic example of this. Birds don't plant, and the birds that do scatter seed don't think of themselves as planting, that's for sure. Um, and so they still are fed, that God feeds them and cares for them. There's a, there's a Luther quote on the back of the bulletin that I think um, brings out this truth in an interesting way. Now, no animal works for its living, but each has t its own task to perform, after which it sees and finds its food. The little birds fly about, and the warble make nests and hatch their young. This is their task, but they do not gain their living from it. Oxen plow, horses carry their riders and have a share in battle, sheep furnish wool, milk, cheese, and so on. That is their task, but they do not gain their living from it. It is the earth which produces grass and nourishes them through God's blessing. Similarly, man must necessarily work and busy himself at something. At the same time, however, he must know that it is, it is something other than his labor which furnishes his sub sustenance. It is divine blessing. Because God gives him nothing unless he works, it may seem as if his labor is, it is as if his labor sustains him, just as the little birds neither sow nor reap. But they could certainly die of hunger if they did not fly about to seek their food. The fact that they find food, however, is not due to their own labor, but to the goodness of God, to God's goodness. For who placed their food there where they can find it? For God has not laid up a supply no one will find, even though they will work... Uh, even though they all work themselves to death searching. That what Luther is pointing out is that birds, while they have their task in the world, while they search and work, it is God who provides that food for them. And so by our nature, I mean, this is one of the things that people often hopefully count their blessings over, is that we were born in 21st century America because we were smartest before we were born. It's not true that God has appointed these times and places for us, that we find food here, that we find work here, that we find something to do here, 
we can chalk up to our own ingenuity, or we can chalk up to divine providence and care. We can talk it up to blessing. There are challenges that come, and there are challenging places to be born too. And such is the act of faith to appreciate it there even greater. And what's partially true is if you've spent time in any of those places, it's much easier for them to see that it is their Father in heaven who cares for them than it is for us. We kind of won the jackpot in being born here at this time in this place in the world. We can't see into the future, obviously. But for today, um, divine providence has certainly been good to us. And the way we repay God by worrying and building bigger barns and storing up more seems like an awkward way to do it. But instead, to see the Father who cares for us And why do you worry about clothes? See the flowers of the field, they grow, they do not labor or spin. I wanted to find an image of a a flower at a loom, trying to, a sewing table, trying to make its own clothes, because it would just be hysterical, but I could not find one, and that's beyond my drawing skills. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. This is, uh, Jesus calls us into looking at the natural world. Look at flowers look at birds and notice the ways in which they've been provided for. If we appreciate the beauty of flowers, which many of us or most of us do, how'd they dress themselves that way? And yet how much more um, will your Father in heaven knows that what he knows what you need for even the pagans run after all these things he says the pagans earlier were the ones who heaped up phrases trying to get god to pay attention to them and what jesus says to his disciples is don't you know that your father knows you you don't draw attention to yourself so that god will be like oh yeah shelly i forgot about her um that that god is is drawn to each of us there's a line in the book we just finished, Gilead, that I just remembered about, uh, is it Saint, he says, St. Augustine says that God must, God must love each of us as an only child. And he says, I have to think that's true because he'll wipe every tear from our eyes. Um, that God doesn't forget about us. Um, the Heavenly Father might have many children, but, but does not forget. And so the flowers neither labor for their thing. And what the sermon ends with um, is this teaching that you should seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given for you as well. Therefore, do not worry about for tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The first is, I love that phrase, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. That means each morning, tomorrow gets to worry about itself. But you get to be free today. If we had a clock, like in the back, uh, that can worry about itself. February of this year, who knew this is where we'd be? And you could have spent your time worrying about it, but you would have been wrong for 100 years since the Spanish flu. Tomorrow can worry about itself. But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. 
There's a psychologist, David, and I like that says, you know, you aim at this thing and then get to work in your day doing that. What is the overarching point of your life by being a disciple of Christ? Seek his kingdom first, his righteousness. Then live your day. St. Augustine has this phrase when people came to him to, to seek advice. He said, love God and do as you please, which he meant is that if you do the first thing, then it's not a question of, well, I'm really worried. Does God want me to live in New York or L.A.? Does God want me to take this job or that job? Seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be given to you as well. So for us, in the face of anxious times, it's for us to, to sort of clear our deck each day. Say to ourselves, how will we seek the kingdom in the places in which we are called to? In Luther's phrase, the toil that we have. But knowing that from that toil doesn't produce the thing, but it is God's goodness that gives it to us. For we have a heavenly Father that knows us much more than we know ourselves. And how much more, if we look at birds or at flowers, will God give us the things that we need? Let us pray. God, you promised in John's gospel that you will not leave us as orphans. You as Father are near to us. You care for us. You promised to free, feed us and clothe us. We think our work and toil can save us. Our reaping and our spinning and our storage will be the ways by which we are saved. And yet you teach us, first seek the kingdom. And then these things will be given to us. God, it is a bold prayer for us. It is a deep challenge for us to arise asking ourselves, what good might I do today to seek this kingdom? What word might I speak about this kingdom? What person may I contact or touch or be with in light of this kingdom? How might I relate and do my work knowing this future kingdom? live in light of that and the knowledge of you as our father can set us free to know that tomorrow has enough problems already but we can get about the task of seeking your kingdom today in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit amen